Hi, and welcome to Dietless Living 360 Degrees, overcoming weight loss obstacles with me, your host, Katie Gordon. As a weight loss coach, I help my clients to overcome their weight loss obstacles so that they can lose weight their way and lose it for life. But the old saying that it takes a village to raise a child actually applies to our weight loss obstacles as well and reaching our weight loss goals and our health goals. Because the obstacles that we have in life often reach out into other areas of our life, whether it's in our relationships, our business, our work, careers, maybe in our home or in our finances. And sometimes we have injuries or other more complex health issues that are impacting our ability to lose weight. So with that in mind, Dietless Living 360 Degrees brings in other professionals to help you overcome those obstacles. And today we have Annette Densham, who is an award-winning PR and business awards specialist, which sometimes still surprises her because the only award she'd ever won was the Top Dog Achievement Award in Grade 2. After losing her cushy corporate communication role, Annette had to reinvent herself and stepped out from behind the keyboard to build her own PR agency. Using her print journalism and corporate communication skills, she now works with entrepreneurs and businesses to build Googleicious profiles by sharing their stories across multiple channels, winning them awards and getting them featured in the media. So welcome to the show, Annette. It's so great having you with us today. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do and what the main way is that you help your clients? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Katie, for having me. I love being here with you. So what I do is like my whole life, like, and that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. My whole life has been about telling stories and sharing stories um, you know, I started in journalism when I was 15 because I, I'm a natural sticky beak and busybody. So I, I love knowing what's going on and I love asking questions. And, you know, even, even as a really, I was a really shy kid, that may surprise you, but I still was confident enough to ask questions when necessary. So what I do now, you know, crikey, 35 years on, is I tell people stories or I empower them to tell their stories using all the wonderful, delicious channels that we have available to us now. Like back when I started in journalism, people got their news from the TV, the radio or newspaper. Now, like, you, you don't even need to read any or look any of those things because it'll pop up in your Facebook feed. So I take those people through that journey of pulling out their stories. And it's not just, you know, when you think of storytelling, it's not like, you know, once upon a time, happily ever after. It's like, you know, What's your hero story? How did you get to be where you are? What are the problems that you solve? You know, what are your insights into the industry that you work with, work with and work within? Uh, so that's what I do. And I apply those skills to things like PR, which is, you know, reaching out to the media, sharing people's stories, writing articles for magazines. And um, what our superpower is, is writing business awards. So that's what we do for our clients. And then we help them leverage those tools so that it's not just seen by a few people, that it's seen by lots of people because we want them to be Googleicious and found all over the internet. So if someone types Katie Gordon in there, you just come up with all of this stuff around, you know, what you do with like within weight loss and health and your story and your journey. Well, that'd be great because there's 40,000 Katie Gordons out there. So when you Google Katie Gordon, there's a lot of us that come up. Be nice to stand out. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a really great point. I mean, you can go on Google Annette Densham and it just kind of happened this way. There is only one Annette Densham out there. Like you, you'll get to 11 pages before you start seeing some other type of Densham. Um, most famous one is Penn Densham, who is an author. Um, but, yeah, if you've got a really common name, then you have to work really hard at, at dropping those organic, um, you know, pieces of content so that Google goes, oh, okay, I can see what this person is doing and start to rank you a little bit higher in the feed. I love that word, Googleicious. Did you come up with that? Is that your word, Smithing? I, th I think it is. I've, I've Googled Googleicious and I can't really find many other people who are using it with such 
flamboyance and um, prolificness as I do. So I'm, I'm going to own that one, Katie. It's it's mine. I made it up. I'm thinking maybe I could contact Beyonce and see if she would do like you know her song, my my body's. And I think that's where it came from. I was listening to um, Beyonce. I don't know why. And she was singing, you know, my body is bootylicious. And I went, that's what we do. We make profiles, googlicious. <laughs> so I was sitting there doing the dance and it's like, I wonder if she changes song so that it could be our theme song. I might have to sell a kidney for that. You should do. Um, and yeah. stick a little TM on the end of it. That's your trademark. Yeah, actually, I should do that. Thank you. Note to self. Tick. <laughs> um. Listen, what, there's usually a series of questions that I take my uh, guests through and today I sort of want to pop some of those aside because I think most of those questions that I ask are covered in your new book that you've just released. Probably. Is that like this wonderful piece of work yes. here? Would you like to yes. tell us a little bit about your book because I, I normally am talking to my um, guest about you know the hardships that they've overcome obstacles how they've overcome them um, and then we talk about a few things what they do for fun relaxation biggest risks they've done and I think that all of those questions are in your book probably maybe my book only goes up to when I'm 25 I'm now almost 52 so I've got a whole other 25 years that I can share trials okay. and tribulations but basically, handle your uh, handle your own PR. Nice shout out to Jill's <laughs> book there. Um, I, she's on my, on my mind. Um, How to eat a shit sandwich and keep smiling is the story of my childhood up until I was twenty five. Because I really don't think I became an adult until I was twenty five, and it it goes through those really significant moments in my life and the things that helped shape me and help. Um, you know guide my story as you know I, I worked my way through those things you know like so you know the book starts with my father dumping mum and myself and my sister in a flat in Hobart because he was um he was a man who loved the lady so he decided that you know mum and two kids was cramping his style and um, ran off with another woman and dumped mum and I and my sister um, all of you know through, through you know when I live with my grandparents my grandfather was you know not the nicest man um, you know some may call him a pedophile I'm, actually that's what I'm going to call him um, to you know domestic violence and you know moving to Sydney to start working for a major newspaper and realizing that I really just didn't fit in um, you know like I there's a, ch a chapter in there with I have a, a discussion with the editor of one of the papers and I'm going like why why are you not like moving me up you know I'm a, I'm a great writer I'm easy to work with you know like I can get anyone to talk to me and he said to me no word of a lie we think you're a little bit too vivacious to me oh. and my response was get fucked seriously <laughs> that's the lamest excuse I've ever heard and he went see and I went, oh, so you want puppets, do you? All right, well, then maybe this is not the right place for me. So it's a very, it's written in the style and the voice of the person I was at the time. So when you read chapter one, I'm like three. It's my earliest memory. And as you read it, it's written as if I'm three, you know. So when you get to my teen years, so when, you know, growing up in the 80s, go 80s music, um, you know, there's lots of cultural references to what Australia was like at that time. But you know, it sounds really serious and it is really serious. But I'm a bit of a joker. So there's a lot of humour peppered through there because, I, and, I mean, go, the, the cover, How to Eat a Shit Sandwich and Keep Smiling, is that I've eaten so many shit sandwiches, but it constantly amazes me that I can find humour in, in just about anything and I'm never down for long. I'm always like going, all right, dust yourself back off in it. Let's go see how we can make this work better or, or find something else to do or, or look at the bright side. Do the Pollyanna thing, right? Look, uh, I was going to use that term, Polly. I've said that to a few young people. I'm a bit of a Pollyanna and they're like, oh, what Pollyanna is? So I send them a link to the show and go, here, watch this. <laughs> 
Well, actually, how old do you think you were when you started developing either your humour or your ability to see that bright side? Because some, I don't know, I'm often wondering whether it's something we learn from other people or whether it's something that, you know, sometimes comes in innate in us. Oh, that's a really great question. Like what popped into my head was at being seven years old and doing you know, I used to love ads and I would memorise them and then I would perform them back to my family in a funny voice or go get dressed up and, you know, like act out a character to that ad. So I, I think it started really early and I, I wonder if it's innate because, you know, like when I was seven, there was some pretty serious stuff going on in my house so there wasn't, wasn't a lot of humour. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it might just be innate. It, it might just be in my DNA. That's the way I was created. That's the way I look at the life because it's how I've always been. You know, like you might, I remember my friends at school when they read my book and they went, we didn't even know that was going on in your life because you were always so happy. Yeah. And I was like, well, school was my safe place. You know, there was my friends, you know, like teachers, who, who looked after you, you know, opportunities to go to parties and have fun. Like, what's not to love about that? And a physical but, safe yeah. place as well. Yeah, my sister, I mean, she's got a good sense of humour, but, you know, I know she sometimes looks at me as if to go, you're a weirdo. Where did you come from? <laughs> not um, sure God if lover. we're related. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. My mum really wasn't, you know, the, the happiest, brightest person I can understand why she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I was just born with a sense of humour and I've I've curated it over the years with, you know, the types of things I like to watch. And, you know, sitting there the other day listing off my favourite movies to my husband and it's like one of my favourite movies is Rock of Ages and We're the Millers. They're both comedies. They're just both absolutely ridiculous. But I love them because there's just this innate sense of fun and, yeah. you know, colour to the humour. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Born With It. Sounds like you were. You've had it all along. <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell me then if your book only goes to when you were 25, what would be um, the biggest hardships or obstacles you've had to overcome between 25 and 52? The first one that comes to mind is that, um, you know, what Zade's 21. So my eldest son's 21. When he was 15 months old, my husband's stepfather cajoled us to move up to Early Beach to take over the family business. Now, this man was a workplace psychopath. He was seriously cracked. And like I can remember the first time I you know, saw him lose his shit, I looked at Earl and went, Oh, I understand where you're coming from now. Cause he was like, his, he was reluctant because he'd gone, oh, you know, he always used to act like this. Maybe he's changed. No, he hadn't. And after six months, he stomped into our house and told us that he wasn't going to sell to us and we could just go back to Brisbane where we came from. So, like, we, we had someone in our house. We really didn't have any money because we were buying into this business so we weren't taking a wage. Yeah. So that was, like, a massive life spin because here we were so far away from all of our friends and our families with a, with a little one um, in this really toxic environment. So that was really hard. And then, but, but I guess it worked out really well because, well, maybe not well, that's not the right words, because when I was pregnant with Quinn, who's now set almost 18, my goodness, I'm getting old, <laughs> um, um, we decided to come home. And found out, you know, six months later that my mum had terminal cancer. Oh. So that was really, really hard. And and still, you know, she's been gone for 16 years and it, it still chokes me up yeah. to think that she's not here because she was my hero and, and watching her die was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, just seeing, just seeing her decide that she wasn't going to fight and that this was her ticket out of hardship. And, yeah, it was, it was, very, it was very difficult. And 
I um I wouldn't wish that upon anybody ever on the planet, but I know it happens. Yeah. But yeah, that they're probably the two hardest things that I've had to deal with in the last 25 years. What words of advice would you give? Because there's other people um, who have to watch loved ones pass in unpleasant circumstances. I know of a few friends that have um, had to be there and see all of that and just the emotional trauma of it for them to to be able to handle it and how it stayed with them. Like you say, it's still years and years later and they're still because of the memories of it. Do you have any words of wisdom or strategies that you've used to help yourself deal with that? I'm going to go back to sense of humour. Like even when mum went into palliative care and, you know, we knew that she wasn't leaving, um, I was still cracking jokes and making a laugh because it made me, like when you laugh, your body releases so many amazing chemicals that you can't help but it doesn't take away the pain but actually makes you feel a little better and it makes you a little bit stronger because you get this surge and it's like, okay, I can move through and I can do that. Yeah. Um, when mum was dying, I watched so much comedy, so much comedy, you know, like Blackadder and Billy Connolly yeah. and, you know, any type of comedy sitcom that I could find because it would put me in a space of not toxic positivity but of a more, you know, positive outlook and, you know, recognising that, you know, death's a pretty, well, it's a really natural part of life. And whether you go now or you go later, we're all going to have to deal with that. So putting myself in that space of going, okay, I can't be miserable because I don't want mum to be feeling terrible because I feel terrible. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to see what I can what what are the light spots that I can find in light. So I think, you know, find a way to make yourself laugh, even though it feels horrible and and you probably think I shouldn't be laughing because that person's dying, but that they're going to want you to keep living and they want you to keep moving forward. So don't shelve all of those other emotions yeah. because that's what will get you through. I mean, like I'm I still grieve for my mum 16 years later, but it's, you know, that moment of, oh, and then it's like, oh, but, you know, mum would be so proud of what I've accomplished and she'd look yeah. at her grandsons and just, go, wow, look at what a great job you've done as parents. And yeah. so, you know, try and try and find those nice little sparkly bits in between. Which is really important, right, because we have to have relief from the grieving. We just can't grieve 24 hours a day, seven days a week, forever, because it's just too exhausting. And you made a really good point there because when you said about, you know, find something to laugh about, find something humorous, even though in that moment your brain's saying you've no right to be laughing, there's people dying, this is not a laughing time. But it's been proven even uh, I remember reading a story about firemen, you know, and how the the tragic things that they have to witness and uh, all of that and how they have to use, they just naturally go to using black humour as a way just to, uh, to like blast apart the moment. Otherwise, it's just too much. We do have mm. to find that laughter. Uh, and I think sadly in this day and age where, you know, political correctness is almost so far to the left and, you know, the woke community and the cancel culture that we live with is so destructive to those very natural reactions that we have as human beings. You know, like I was saying to my son the other day, we were talking about laughing, you know, you know, someone dies and you laugh and you feel guilty about it. And it's like, you know, mate, the reason we're able to get through these moments is because when we make a joke about something that's almost too horrific for our brains to cope with, the humour allows us to kind of smooth that path yes. through it and recover out the other side. So yes. you know, I was, was watching um, Grey's Anatomy the other day. It's where all my great insights come from, Katie. <laughs> and there was a... a um, a, a woman had come in and her partner had died and she was talking to the doctor and, and you could see in that moment that, you know, she was acting, but in that moment she forgot 
that she was meant to be sad and she laughed and then she went shut down and the doctor said to her, no, it's okay for you to continue to find joy and love and positiveness in your life. That doesn't detract from that person's passing because, you know, as, as harsh as it is, they're gone. You still have to continue living and we have to do that in the fullness and richness of all of our humanity and we cannot shut down those emotions that will help us get through. Well, and it's so right. And and we often do. I remember many times my brother passed when I was 16. And I remember just thinking, uh, you know, no right at all, or not even not a right. It's like, how can I possibly be happy? This person that I've loved beyond life is gone. But without that to soothe ourselves like you just you have to have relief from the grief it's just it's a must otherwise you're just insane all the time yeah it's almost like a a security blanket you know one of those little blankies that you would rub when you're a kid that's what I think our humor is it's that little soft plush blankie that makes us feel good even for a moment yeah um and you know I don't want to live going through life feeling bad for feeling good and no. something I really noticed through COVID was people going, oh, you know, we write awards and people going, oh, I really don't want to promote the oh awards God, with all of the bad things going on in the world. And I'm like, why the fuck not? Exactly. Like, seriously, does the world stop because there's a pandemic or there's a fire or there's a drought that doesn't diminish your heart and your compassion and your empathy? for the people who are going through that. But don't punish yourself because you're not. And play small, right? And play small because those people who are struggling don't want you to put your life on hold because how do we keep the economy going and our relationships going if we all go, well, the world sucks, we should all be miserable? Like where's where's the hope in that? Well, exactly right. And, you know, like happiness is a skill. We're not taught to be happy. We are taught to be cautious and, you know, how dare you be happy when your brother's whatever or, you know, there's all kinds of messages that we get through our life about don't be happy. And I know some people who grew up in homes where being happy was a punishable offence because, you know, other people in the home were so unhappy just in general with their life, that if their kids were happy, they got punished for, oh, you're happy. Well, I'll give you something to be happy about, you know, go scrub the floors and, you know, those kinds of things. Well, just, and happiness really is a skill because it goes against like the natural innate part of our brain to be happy. You learned early, which is wonderful, how to make yourself happy because the brain's natural thing is, be on the lookout for danger and don't don't be happy now you know I know a lot of people go by the um uh what's the old saying waiting for the other shoe to drop oh, you yeah. know, when things are really good and it's like yay everything's going really well oh well we'll see we'll wait for the you know the other shoe to drop kind of thing and it's like no be happy enjoy the yeah. moment you're allowed well, I can't- why can't the other shoe be a big sparkly stiletto ready to take you to the ball? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you've raised some really good points and I'm really grateful that you did because it's important for people to remember that happiness is in your control. Absolutely. So it's like when people say, I didn't have a choice. Uh, well, yeah, you always have a choice. Not having a choice is making a choice. You know, when people go, I can't make a decision. Well, you've just made a decision that you're not going to make a decision. So when we take back our power and we go, if it is to be, it's up to me. I I was, I think I was like 17 or 18. Um, No, I might have been a little bit older and I was looking for a job. I'd finished high school looking for a job. There was like record unemployment. And I did this course with Lifeline on job skills. Yeah. And we were, we had someone come in and, you know, talk about mindset. Like this is back in the, like the late 80s. Like, and we were talking about mindset. And I remember saying something like, oh, it's that person's fault that I'm unhappy. And I remember being pulled up and it's stuck with me ever since. 
And the teacher said, the only person who can make you happy is you. No one else can make you feel any other way. So like when we, like one of the things that maybe irks me a little bit is this word trigger, like trigger warning people. This is a trigger warning. You know, we're going to talk about domestic violence or, or whatever it is. And it's like, if you accept that how you respond to whatever comes up in front of you is in your control, then you're never triggered. I mean, like, man, my life is filled with sexual abuse and I can read that stuff about, you know, women's stories without being triggered because I know it's their story. Yeah. It's not my story and that I'm not going to live in a space of being a victim because that's, you know, I, I feel like, that's a victim mentality when you push it all out and you say, well, you made me feel this way or you did this to me or you did that to me. Um, and I can't even remember what the question is now. I've got on my soapbox there. <laughs> that's okay, right, because I the word trigger, like something do trigger us. However, mm-hmm. once you've been triggered, maybe that does happen for some people without warning. It certainly does for me. Something happens and you go, oh, and there's an emotion and stuff, but you've got to grab your awareness of it as quick as you can, as soon as you know it's happening, and then take responsibility to change what's going on, not just run with it. Absolutely. That's absolutely yeah. So, I mean, you're right. I, I often go, oh, that's offensive, but it's offensive to me. Yeah. And then I choose how offended I'm going to be by that. Most of the time I'm like, like, really, do I really want to spend time worrying about <laughs> do I want what to someone else? Precious life on that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'd rather go and download the new episode of Grey's Anatomy and sit on my couch. <laughs> Get some more and, insights. Yeah, and eat some chocolate. You know, I'm pretty sure after 18 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, I could do like a whipple. <laughs> What's a whipple? Uh, it's a medical procedure. Oh. <laughs> yeah. If ever I need a Whipple, I'm coming to you. Yeah, come to me. Like I've watched so many Whipples being performed on Grey's Anatomy. I'm pretty certain I could pull it off. Well, you know what? It's really amazing what people, I'm sure there's millions of stories out there of people who have done miraculous things because they've seen it on TV or in a movie or something. And then in that moment of crisis and they've gone, their brain's gone, I know how to do that. Yeah, well, look, if, if your pancreas ever goes, you know, you, you need me to, to look after it, then the whipple will come in handy. <laughs> so, you know, like I've got some pretty sharp knives around. <laughs> Remind me of MASH. No, I won't go there. <laughs> I do have a scalpel somewhere. I've actually got a scalpel. Don't ask me why. <laughs> or what you do with it. Yeah, I don't even know where it is. Well, I just love the interesting conversation that you can have because not everyone's really capable of diving into some of those biggest uh, topics. So can you tell me um, about uh, the biggest risk that you've ever taken and why? Okay, I'm a big one for going with the first thing that pops into my head. So the first thing that popped into my head was bungee jumping. <gasps> You're gamer than me. I've always did in, that. In a bikini. <laughs> that was risky. It was very entertaining for everyone else, but I tell you what, it was a bit of a tits up for me when you go in the water and you lose your bikini top. That that that's like that wasn't really a risk. It was very safe, you know. Had all the safety procedures, but for me, I was scared of heights. And I can remember getting it was like two hundred feet. It was the the tallest bungee jump in the southern hemisphere. It was up in Ellie Beach, and I got to the top, and like I I thought I was going to vomit. My knees, even though my legs were strapped together, were like banging together, and it's like my hands were shaking, and it's like I'm going to die if I do this. This is stupid. What am I doing? And I said to, what am I doing? And I said to the guy, I said, oh, I don't think I can do this. And he said one thing to 25-year-old me who'd left her job and had no other job to go to. You don't get your money back. And I was like, oh, God damn it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so he said, look, just go stand on the edge, look out, don't look down, and just count to one, two, three, bungee, and dive in. 
So I did just that and I was the most amazing thing I think I've ever done, the adrenaline from jumping 200 feet into a like a little tiny pool was just into a cup <laughs> into a cup it looked like a cup from above <laughs> it was exhilarating and my husband who was my boyfriend at the time said to me that was the most amazing dive he said your form was excellent and I was like well maybe I could get a, a job at the Olympics I was just thinking Olympic dive board yeah <laughs> So that's my smart-ass answer. The, the biggest risk I think I've taken was when I moved from Brisbane to Sydney to go work for a, a major newspaper in Sydney. Um, you know, I moved without actually having a job. I packed up my whole life, which really wasn't much. I was 21 years old, um, hopped on a train, you know, went and stayed in some boy's house that I'd met a few months before and lived with him and his family for a while. Um, until I could do the entrance exam to get um, into working as a, a journalist. Um, and that was that was a massive risk. Um, I had no money. I had no job. Like, I didn't know anybody. Um, you know, I was like thousands of kilometres from home, yeah. no backup, no support. But I just I just think that was the spirit of, of how I lived my life. It's, you know, like, go do the thing and then work out how to make the thing work afterwards because yeah. I found that if I sit and think too long about something because I'm a real plotter yeah. and yeah. it'll be like, okay, if I do this and this will happen and then this will happen, but if I do this, this will happen, I found that if I just go, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. My husband will go, well, how are you going to make it work? And I don't care. We'll work it out. Work it out what as you it, go. you got to get off yeah. the starting block anyway to know how it's going to go to know what to do next, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that's hopefully I infuse that in the clients that we work with because a lot of them have got, you know, that itty-bitty shitty committee in their head telling them that they can't do it, they're not good enough, you know, that who do they think they are. Yeah. But if you can encourage them just to take that step, being emboldened has something that, I don't know, you just, it must be another surge of chemicals that go through your brain and, and tells that voice to shut up and you go, you know what, I can actually do this. Yeah. just need to take another step. So, yeah, it was risky. Didn't really pay off because it ended with me taking that organisation to court for just really horrible employment practices. Yeah. Um, but I actually left... I, I walked away from journalism in that moment and I felt really proud of myself because I stood up for my principles. You know, I stood up for myself and I didn't just stand up for myself. I stood up for dozens of other people who were working in the same conditions with me but who were so trapped by opportunity and saying the wrong thing and upsetting the powers that be. Yeah. that, you know, you, you could have whipped them and they would have gone, please whip me harder. You know, I want this job. Make, you know, make me bleed. Yeah. And I just went, I'm not prepared to sacrifice and, you know, shed what I believe is right yeah. just because I, I really want this job. So, yeah, so four years later I packed my bags up again and came back to Brisbane. But see, that's the learning curve of life, isn't it? it, it yeah, well, it's hard to it, sometimes point out whether it was a success or a failure or something else because ultimately it leads to other things anyway. Yeah, well, I met my husband and we've been together 27 years. So, and we've got two beautiful kids and an amazing life together. Yep, all part of the breadcrumb trail. Yep. <laughs> so we talked about some of the biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome that were thrust upon you, for want of a better term, which is, you know, obstacles of life. It's human being. We, stuff happens to us. And yep. we talked about you, the risks that you've taken, but is there, um, what's the hardest thing that you've ever voluntarily put yourself through and why? Oh, look, yeah, I'm going to say weight loss surgery last year. That was that was big, you know, having your stomach removed. Like that's extreme. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong, not, not just in the surgery but after the surgery, you know, like things like reflux and, you know, bowel issues and 
gallbladder issues and malnutrition and, you know, all of those type of things. But I, I'd reached a point in my life where I was that unwell and I'd been unwell for so, so long that I went, I, I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. Like, I mean, I, I'm a happy, positive person, but I can really see this bringing me down to the point where I'm going to be in a mobility chair before I'm 60. Yeah. And it's like I've still got so much life to live and I wasn't finding any solutions within the medical community. I'd been to endocrinologists and GP, you know, all types of specialists. I'd type all types of different ways of eating and exercise and meditation and, oh, you, I mean, you name it. I'd given it a crack and I went and saw my doctor it was like January 2021 and it's like I could see the weight just getting more and more on my body and and everything hurt and I was just sick all the time and so I found this really great hormone doctor and I went to visit her and we were talking about it and she said to me Annette have you considered weight loss surgery and I went what I was a little bit offended even though I was really fat it's like if there was ever a candidate for weight loss surgery, it was me. But in my head, it was like weight loss surgery is for people who overeat, who've got emotional eating problems, and that's not me. Yeah. And she said, I, and she challenged me. So if you ever want me to do anything, challenge me. And she said, <laughs> Annette, I think you need to go educate yourself. And I was like, oh, okay, I've been put in my place. So I started that journey of like looking at the benefits of that like that gastric sleeve surgery on thyroid issues and on immune compromised um, health issues. And there was some incredible research out there where they're having really favorable outcomes on improving thyroid function um, in people who had hypothyroidism. So it was like, all right, I'm I'm going to do it. So I can remember sitting there with my compression stockings on and my really ugly, um, you know, hospital gown, just, petrified and like going oh, I don't, uh, one it costs a lot of money yeah but two it was going to be a lot of pain so yeah, yeah I, I put my hand up for that yes put me in pain and make it really hard for me for four months not to be able to eat and you know to, to get through a liter of water is like oh my god we've got to drink more water um but it it paid off my health is excellent you know I'm not malnourished sleep really well I can wipe my bum without getting a stitch you know all of those things that I was struggling so hard to do you know almost a year year later um, has changed my life and did they help prepare you for all of that or yes Uh, I looked for a clinic I actually paid more I did a lot of research around clinics yeah and I found one that had a really great support program so I had to pay you know five grand more for it but um, it included a psychologist. So I have a a meeting with a psychologist every month. I had to go see the psychologist before I had the surgery to make sure that, you know, I was in sound mind and and probably to suss out what my emotional eating issues were, if I had any, what type of support system I had at home. Um, I have a meeting with a dietitian every month. I have a meeting with um, a nurse every month. And, And after the surgery, for the first four months, it was weekly. There was someone calling me and saying, how are you going? And it'd be like, I'm really struggling with this. And they go, we'll do this or, um, you know, eat this or drink more of this or, you know, what mostly it was around pooing. It's like, I can't poo. Such an important and vital thing and you don't know how wonderful it is unless you've not been able to do it. Oh, my God, I said to my husband the other day, like, this is probably TMI. But I came out of the loo and I went, oh, my God, that was the best poo I've done in six months. And he looked at me and, as if to go, you need to get out more. <laughs> no, that was just truly great. That was, like, inspirational. <laughs> I know. Only those who know the, the trauma of not being able to. Yeah. Well, that's really great. So what advice would you have for other people who were considering to have that surgery? 
do your homework. I mean, like it's really easy to be generic and, and say this is, you know, a solution that will help everybody. But what I've noticed, I'm in a lot, a lot of Facebook groups with people who've had weight loss surgery, is the number one thing is if you've got an issue with food, the emotional issues with food, you really need to sort that out first. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to sort it out, but you really need to get help in working out why food is an issue for you why you use you emotionally eat or you know why you crave certain things and it's it's never about the food is it katie it's always about what's going on between your ears and your life experiences exactly <laughs> and, so, and being, not being able to eat like having so much of your stomach removed but still having all of those urges in there that's just torment Oh, absolutely. I mean, like one of my like I even one of my favorite foods was um chili chips. I could sit and I could eat half a packet of chili chips in one sitting before I went, all right, I think I'm gonna vomit. And now I don't even eat chili chips anymore. It really changed my like I had a pretty good relationship with food, yep. but it changed my taste buds and my experience of food. And I think now I probably savor food a lot more. So like I can, I've got my, my husband buys me a block of chocolate every month. Yeah. So even though I didn't have food issues, I do, I had a big stomach like everybody. Yeah. I'd eat that in a night. I've had this for, I don't know, this is my third week. Oh, wow, cool. So I have one line. Yeah. You know, when I go, oh, I feel like chocolate. And I, I can make it last for 30 minutes. Because I just savour it. It's just so good. So, yeah, work, work on what's going on between your head before you have that surgery. Research and find a good surgeon. Go and join Facebook groups. Um, you know, I did six months before the surgery. and Ask lots of questions yeah. so that when I had the surgery and I got home, I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Pretty much. I knew how my body would respond in terms of my bowel movements. I knew what would happen with my, you know, my monthly cycle. I knew what, you know, type of foods I would have to eat over those months. And also make sure you've got an excellent support system at home. That really makes my my husband made sure my first three months is I really didn't have to think about what I ate. Yeah. He just made it and delivered it to me. And he was always like going. I don't think you've, you've eaten enough protein today. I'm going to make you a drink and put some protein powder in it, okay? And I'm like, okay, darling. Um, because when I look at my body now, because I was really worried that I'm, because I was so, like I've lost almost 60 kilos. Wow. Um, I was so big. I thought, how can that stomach shrink down into what it is now and not look like the surface of the moon, yeah. you know, that someone's blown up with some rockets? Um, but I think, you know, making sure I ate lots of really good protein and yeah. col and collagen in my protein powder was a, a big thing. So you don't know those things unless you ask questions. And see, now that's a good thing, right, what you're saying. Can you tell people some of the good questions to ask? Because I know in different situations in my life I've gone, ask good questions. I don't know what to ask because I don't know what I don't know. Please tell me the questions to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I th one of the biggest questions I asked was what can go wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, like what's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? And how would I manage those? Yeah. Um, and another one was, um, you know, who, who are the people out there that can help me get through this? So there's like a, you know, a lot of really good businesses like Tiny Tummies that make bariatric size meals so that, you know, maybe you live by yourself and you don't have someone to help you yep. is that you can booby trap your food because one of the biggest slippery slopes is going back to old habits. And I went into an after surgery prepared to change my habits and how I ate and my composition of my food like now I'm just bending down because I can't eat and I can't eat enough sometimes that I have to give you know so that's what I eat yep. food out of now that's my dinner bowl that's my lunch bowl that's my breakfast bowl that's yep. where all my food goes I'm pretty sure the dog might need surgery soon because he keeps <laughs> eating on my leftovers um and it, another he now he expects it. He's got expectation. And as soon as I eat, he's there like going, you're eating? I can't, I'm going to get something out of this. Um, and another really good question 
that I asked was um, how do I, and this is where I got the protein and the collagen from, was how do I prepare my body so that I don't need to have plastic, so like, you know, um, yeah. tummy tuck or, or any of those type of things because I thought I really don't want to have to go back under anesthesia and under the knife. It takes a long time to recover. I think it, it was probably five months till I started going, oh, actually, I feel like a normal human being now. Yeah. Um, but if you go into those groups, so there's a really good um, group on Facebook called Beck's Totally Honest Group. Yeah. Um, she started it. Her name's Rebecca. She started the group, I don't know, three or four years ago after she had surgery. And there's now something like 15,000 people in there wow. who share their wins and, and their challenges and their struggles. And, like, going through those groups helped me with questions um, even before I knew what questions I needed to ask because someone else had asked them. Yeah. So always reach out to the community because there'll always be someone out there who's been through it before you and can give you some insight and guidance. Thank you so much for that because that's going to be really helpful for somebody, right? It's just we don't know what questions to ask unless we know what questions to ask. And if you don't know what questions to ask, where's the place to go to start looking and join in the conversations? Yeah, absolutely. It's like you don't know what you don't know and it's and it's really hard if the the, the balls bounce back into your court to ask questions and you're like going, you know, there's there's so many people who get such bad advice. Yes. Because they don't they don't know what to ask. So yeah, always reach out to your community. And when you find a good question, quest question, that's a new word for you. When you find a good question, ask lots of people the same question. Yeah, absolutely. And get lots of different answers so then you can go I can't need to sort through this based on my life experience and my intellect yeah. and work out what suits me and another one is if you've got a question there are no dumb questions ask it put it out into the public forum yeah. because there'll be someone out there who will know the answer for you and like I'm a really big one for that I, I'm I'm a become a massive oversharer because I just realise in my life there's so many people, you know, toddling along in ignorance, yeah. not for their own fault, but just because they don't know what to ask or they're not sure how to express themselves. And I went, you know what, I've got the power and the skill to be able to say what I think and do it, you know, articulately and well and well written. Yeah. That That's my responsibility to say things like, you know, hey, that's not on or has anyone thought of this? And I always get messages back from people going, thank you so much for saying that or for asking that or for sharing that because that's how I feel or I was wondering about that. And it's like, yeah. you know, rising tide lifts all ships. If we can help each other with, you know, knowledge is power, then, yeah. you know, we can't be bamboozled by these politician types out there. Exactly. We speak in riddles and we can go back and go, yes, we know what we want. Exactly right. So um, tell me, Annette, because we're going to have to wind up soon. Unfortunately, I could talk to you all day. You're so interesting and I just love the conversation with you. Um, I want to get back to what you do um, with the PR work and how you help people. So before we go, in a few more words, how you help people with the getting the awards and telling their story so that if their obstacle at the moment is getting their business known, how would you be able to help them uh, do that? Okay, have a conversation with either me or Lauren. Um, again, it comes down to you don't know what you don't know. And when it comes to awards, um, people get you know overwhelmed by all of the categories and all the different types of awards. But even distilling down what their achievements are because when you work in small business or, you know, in your own venture, you are head down, bum up, eyes on the prize in the day-to-day, -day, you know, working on all of the bits and pieces that we quite often don't come up the air and go, come above our business and go, oh, wow, I've brought on 10 new clients this year or my business has grown by 20% or my income's increased or, um, I've been asked on all of these podcasts or, you know, someone's approached me to do this collaboration. 
So telling, and, and especially working with someone who's a professional sticky beat, um, <laughs> I ask lots of questions. So I'm able to go, oh, you just, like, and so, it's amazing, Katie, when someone goes, oh, I did blah, 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 blah. And then they go on and I go, no, 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 hang on, let's go back a little bit because you just told me that you won an Olympic gold medal in shot put and you've just cast that aside like it was taking the washing out yesterday. You know, let's talk a little bit about that. Anybody who's won gold in the Olympics for shot put, please contact me because I'd love to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like anything, sometimes you just need another set of eyes or another set of ears to hear what it is and to ask those questions so yeah. that we can say to you, okay, I think that you could enter this, this and this in these categories because of this reason. Yeah. Give them the information and then it's up to them if they, you know, want to have a go. Yep. Cool. And if people want to find out more, how can they contact you? Uh, go to theaudaciousagency.com. So that's A-U-D-A-C-I-O-U-S, theaudaciousagency.com. On the home page, there's a link, chat with us. You can book an appointment 20 minutes with me or with Lauren. We're both as good as each other. Lauren is the most amazing partner in Shine on the planet. So, you know, like we just, we live and breathe awards. Um, or track me down on Facebook. You'll find me. It's the only one in attention on Facebook. Um, or LinkedIn or Instagram. Um, Google me. You know, there's lots of smoke signals. Um, <laughs> send me flowers. I'll be your friend forever. Google Googleicious and you'll find her. Googleicious, Annette. That's me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Annette. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I, I really hope you'll come back to the show at another time and we can continue our conversation. Um, and to those that are watching, thank you for joining us today. And as always, it's really hard to say goodbye. So we hope to see you again at the next uh, episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe to the channel. And if you got something great out of today's conversation with Annette, please leave a comment and give us a thumbs up and give us some encouragement to continue to produce the shows. And that's all for now. So thanks again, Annette. You've been an absolute delight. I'm just so pleased that you came on today. So bye, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks, Katie. Bye.